All right. Well, it is uh, great to be with you this morning. This is the last sermon in this series on Nehemiah. We're starting another series on prayer um, next week, and I'm looking forward to that as well. Um, But uh, it's called The Good Work because changing the world is what Jesus died for. And as you think about the world and all the problems that are in the world, um, it can be overwhelming, right? You have poverty, you have hunger, crime, war, uh, racism. I wrote a list, educating, education, orphans, housing, abortion, drugs, suicide, poverty of all. You You have so many problems in the world that are, are unsolvable. You can't, you, you, we have been trying to fix these things for years. The U.S. government spends over, they spend trillions of dollars and it just doesn't stop these problems. Here's something that I believe is totally true. If everyone gave their life to Jesus Christ and surrendered to him, every single one of those problems in the world would end in less than a month. He is the answer. We we talk about our mission as a church, and really it's the mission of every follower of Jesus Christ, and that is to make more and better disciples because that is the answer. More people, more like Jesus. Like that is what we'll solve because so many of these problems, the the food problem, hunger in Ethiopia right now, you have millions, hundreds of thousands at least, if not millions that are incredibly hungry. Why? Why? Because one group is at war with another group and they won't let food in. And it's not like these are the bad guys and these are the good guys. It's like there's bad guys on both sides. There's good guys on both sides. It's just a mess. But we have enough food to feed everyone in the world. No one needs to be hungry. Why are people hungry? Because of sin. Because of wickedness. Because we, people just don't want to follow Jesus and be like him. And so we've been talking about, you know, how do we, how do we change this world? And, and it's allowing Jesus to change us and then doing what God made us to do and saved us to do, whatever that is. And it's so different for different ones. I had a man kind of right in the middle here, um, last service, and he said, you know, I, I, I went to college and I made lots of bad decisions and my son was a surprise and I wasn't married, and I made more bad decisions, and I never, he says, I always wanted to be a teacher, and I never got there, but I realized this is my thing. I coach. I coach baseball. I coach football. I coach all the time, and that's what God made me to do, to use, to teach kids through sports, character development. He says, and that, that, that's my thing, and that's how God wants me. I, I work this job to pay the bills, but my passion is these kids, and, and impacting their lives and their character. And, and so whatever your thing is, you know, find something that God made you to do and just go after it. And, and that's what Nehemiah did. And Nehemiah built a wall. And um, that doesn't sound significant. We talked about the size. It's almost, it would be almost as wide as the stage, not quite that wide. 22 feet wide, 25 feet tall, four and a half miles long out of field stone built this wall, and it took hundreds if not thousands of of Jews from eight surrounding towns plus Jerusalem, and and the Bible says this about it, the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul, that's the name of a month, in 52 days. 52 days they built this tower, the the towers that went with it, 11 gates, um, 
four and a half mile wall of that size. It's just amazing. But, but here's what I want to talk about today with all of us. And that is to, to seal your victory in life. How do you achieve a victory bigger than a wall? Because building, rebuilding this wall that had been broken down for 140 years was one of the least significant accomplishments of Nehemiah's life. But God used the wall to allow him to do even more significant things. And we're going to talk about that. There's three qualities in Nehemiah that I think if we implement in our lives, will seal our uh, legacy in this world, enabled, in, in allowing us to do something bigger than even that wall that Nehemiah built. And, and here's the first character quality we need to have, and that is humility and humbly recognize your need for God. You know, we need God. Um, Nehemiah was surrounded by enemies. He had enemies on the outside, people that were not Jews, that were pressuring him and that wanted to kill him. They, they had this peace summit that they invited Nehemiah to, Samballat and Tobiah and Jeshem the Arab. They said, oh, come meet with us in this town and we'll talk over and we'll just come up with, with this peaceful resolution. And it, it was actually an assassination plot. They said, let's get Nehemiah away from his men, away from the walls that he's building. And they were building with one guy would have a spear in hand while others were building because there was, there was armies that were opposed to, to the Jewish nation being protected by a wall around their capital city. And so they're like, get him out of that, get him into this town and we'll kill him. And this is his response. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? I'm really too busy to be killed today. <laughs> Maybe tomorrow, you know. And uh, then they said, oh, well, we're going to tell the king that you're planning an insurrection and you're going to put yourself as king of Israel and, and he's not going to get any taxes anymore. And, and so he says, so I sent them this reply, nothing like what you were saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. And he's, I just love, Nehemiah just cuts to the chase there. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work. And it will not be completed, but I prayed, now strengthen my hands. All throughout the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1, he hears about how bad things are in Jerusalem. What does he do? He prays. He gets on his knees. He fasts for months. He prays about it. He depends on God. And then when he has an opportunity to speak to King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, what does he do? He prays real quick, like, oh, God, help me not to say things wrong. And, 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 and all throughout, we have these little prayers and some longer prayers where, where when he's confronted with a problem, he, he, he talks to God. I don't, I don't think anything illustrates and identifies how dependent you are on God or on yourself more than prayer. People who do not pray are self-dependent. They, they, don't, they don't depend on God. And people who pray all the time have a humility and a dependence on God. Prayer is so important. In fact, every year we, we try to have a day of prayer. We did it even last year. This year it's August 8th. 
And from midnight Sunday morning to midnight Sunday night, we encourage people to come and pray. And we usually have somewhere between one and 200 maybe people that come and pray together. We meet in the room next to the cafe. And I want you to plan on it. August 8th, say, well, I'm working that day. Come at midnight. Oh, I'm working through the night. Well, good. Come at 6 p.m. <laughs> it's, you can work in it unless you're out of town. So, but, but if you're in town, be here. Say, well, it's awkward for me to pray out loud. Well, just come and listen. And um, Nehemiah depended on God. And we need to do that too. Wise people, you know, a lot of, I think most, certainly all Christians eventually get to prayer. But too often it's the last resort when it needs to really be the first thing we think of is I need to pray. And, and you know what? Many times God doesn't verbally, audibly, in fact, I've never had him verbally, audibly answer me. But, you know, it's not like, oh, God, what should I do? And, you know, this is what you should do. But it's just that recognition. Like, I need God's help. I can't do this on my own. You know, recognize your need for God. He had enemies on the outside and then he had enemies on the inside. And this is something we all need to recognize. And if you're a new believer here, I was talking to a man who hasn't been a Christian that long and his world was just rocked recently because he was attacked by someone he thought was his friend, by someone who is a believer. And it just rocked his world. He said, I, I expect this from people who aren't following Jesus, but, but from him, it hurt me. I felt betrayed. And I, I, who can I trust? And this is what happened to Nehemiah. In fact, this, this, this is throughout, throughout all of, of church history and, and before the Apostle Paul in Acts, he's with the Ephesian elders and he's saying, this is the last time I will talk to you. I'm going to Jerusalem and then I'm going to be in prison. I'm going to be executed. You will not see me again. And among his last words, he said, after I leave, wolves will come into this church and they will not spare the flock. Be on your guard. If you're Satan, where do you go on Sunday morning to do the most damage? You go to church. And, and we need to recognize, you know what, and be on our guard and realize, you know what, that's just the way it is. And Nehemiah faced that kind of opposition as well. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel. Who knows how to pronounce? You know, I took Hebrew for three semesters in seminary. My third semester of Hebrew... It was the hardest class I ever had, hardest I ever worked. I got a C and praised God. So I have no idea how to pronounce these, these words now, 27 years after seminary. Um, but anyway, Shemaiah, he was shut in at his home. This is a follower of God. This is a fellow Jew. This is someone supposed to be on Nehemiah's side. And he said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors, be in the courtyard area because men are coming to kill you. By night, they're coming to kill you. And it sounds like he's on Nehemiah's side. Nehemiah, you're in trouble. I'm looking out for you. I want to I help you. But here's what Nehemiah said. I realized God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sembalat had hired him. And he had been hired to intimidate me so I would commit a sin by doing this and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. And, and so 
This was kind of an interesting passage because I'm like, what's going on? How could he sin by going into the temple? Maybe because it would be a sin of cowardice, right? Um, maybe, maybe, and he says, a man like me shouldn't do that. Well, what does that mean, a man like you? And so a couple months ago, I was really studying this and, and some scholars who actually can read and understand Hebrew, um, no more than me, they pointed out the fact that most people believe Nehemiah was a eunuch for three reasons. Number one, in chapter two, we find him in the presence of the queen. And uh, Persian history tells us that they did not allow servants in the presence of the queen who were men unless they'd been castrated. And that was a regular practice of many of the, we know Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his three friends in the Babylonian Empire, they were all eunuchs as well. This was a common practice. The ancient world was pretty barbaric. People are pretty barbaric. And so for that reason, many people believe it, he's, his family is never mentioned. Many of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they mention a wife, they mention kids, Nehemiah, there is no family ever mentioned. And then the third thing is the Bible that Jesus read. So Jesus was born over 400 years after this. And the Bible that, that the apostles would have had was called the Septuagint. It was a Greek translation from the Hebrew Old Testament. And the Greek translation of Nehemiah as a cupbearer, they actually translated Nehemiah was a eunuch. And so for that reason, and so that brings, why am I mentioning that? That, that brings this into, into focus because eunuchs were not allowed in the temple courtyard. No matter how godly you were, that was against the Old Testament law. And so that's why Nehemiah is saying, can a man like me go into the temple? And the answer was, no, I'm not allowed. And instead of getting angry at that, and how come God doesn't accept me? No, God, Nehemiah knew God accepted him. God accepts me. This is just one of his laws. And I don't understand his laws, but I'm going to obey his laws. And if he, had, if he had gone into the temple like that, then they would have been able to discredit him. And they said, oh yeah, Nehemiah is telling you to obey God's laws, but he doesn't obey all of them. He's inconsistent. He, he has no credibility. You can ignore what he's saying. And he was on to that. He says, no, I, even to spare my life, I am not going to do this. I'm going to obey God's law. Because some of the other laws that he was championing, and we'll see this, were laws like don't enslave people. And he said, that's wrong. And he was standing up to those in power and wealth. And, and so if, if he did this, they'd say, oh, you can go ahead and sell and buy slaves don't listen to Nehemiah because, yeah, that's in God's word, but this is in God's word too, and he doesn't listen to that. He's inconsistent. Just ignore him. And so this was a, a, a real attack, a very sneaky attack on his credibility. Um, enemies from within. The best decisions we have ever made as a church were attacked more by those inside the church than those outside. When we decided to start a new campus in Halstead, had two arguments against that. Some people said, why are we creating competition with ourselves? This is not the way you build a kingdom. Well, it's not the way I build my kingdom. That's the way you build God's kingdom. You send people away. You go and you reach others. Because it's not about my kingdom or your kingdom or our kingdom. It's about God's kingdom. And so some people would say, why are you sending people away? 
That, 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 that's crazy. Some, some said the exact opposite. They said, you're trying to build a kingdom. Like, what? Like, yeah, oh yeah, you want Bridgewater on all over? You're building this? Let me, let me tell you something. If you were to go to Tunkhannock, Vestal, I'm not sure. This might not be true, but I think it's kind of true. Um, and you were to say, hey, who's Bob Kedlisic? Most of the people there wouldn't know who I am. Some of them, Tunkhannock might be. Maybe be Conklin. I don't know. But the whole point is, this is not about a kingdom, right? But there was, there was attacks. And they were saying, this is ungodly. This is wrong. This is unscriptural. It's the best decision. I think the best decision we've ever made in a, as a church in the last 20 years. And send people away like that. We changed our music to, to more contemporary music. And the response from some people in the church is, this is ungodly and unloving and wrong. And you know what? When, when people do things that maybe aren't the way you'd want to do it, as long as it's not in God's word, you need to be very careful about attacking and criticizing because you may wind up criticizing a Nehemiah. And you know, in, in March or something like that, we closed down, March of 2020, we closed down our services. In June of 2020, we reopened. Both of those decisions were disliked. By people in the church. We never should have closed. We never should have opened. Not that soon. Not that. You, you know what? Here, here's where Forest Lake Baptist did things very different than us. When they reopened, they reopened in the summer. Everyone was outside. Everyone wore masks. They were much more strict than we were. And I praise God for Forest Lake Baptist Church. We need churches that are different. And as long as it's not in God's word, I'm not going to criticize someone else for how they're doing it differently. Right? Romans 14.1, you know, disputable matters between you and God. You know, let's not argue about those. Now, if it's in God's word, stealing, in God's word, don't do it. Buying and selling people into slavery, not right. Don't do it. Right? I'll confront you on that. We need to confront one another on that. But but if it's, if it's just, you know, something that's not in God's word, then we need to be willing to uh, let people be judged by God and not by ourselves. So don't attack others in the church. And he goes on, says, remember Tobiah and Sembalat, my God, because of what they've done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. The people you would think would support Nehemiah the most were those who were attacking him. Prophets, a prophetess. We find out later the high priest has, you know, uh, alliances with these enemies, Tobiah and, and, and these others. Um, so just be on guard for that. Um, not everybody who says they're following Jesus is actually a follower of Jesus. And we're not perfect. Sometimes we criticize and we attack and it's sinful and it's wrong and we shouldn't. In fact, that's something that I really appreciate. And I won't mention the, these people by name, but there was a man and it was over hunting and another man just reamed him out. You know hunting in Susquehanna County. I mean, there's nothing more serious <laughs> than property and who's hunting where and what's right and wrong. And this guy 
falsely accused and attacked this individual for hunting in a place that he had all the right to hunt in and um, was a Christian. And just, you know, and then a few weeks later, he went back and he said, I'm sorry for acting that way. It was wrong. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And when that happened, a man doesn't come to our church, but he's a believer. I was like so impressed with him because that just doesn't happen. But that's how we should be. And we should recognize the fact that, you know what? Uh, if you're doing anything significant for God, someone is going to come after you. Someone is going to hate you. Someone is going to criticize it. And that's okay. In fact, maybe that's a good sign that you're headed in the right direction. And that's, that's what Nehemiah was faced with. So he humbly recognized his need for God. Secondly, he courageously called others to live with integrity. And um, as he did that, it's interesting who he called to live with integrity. He didn't call non-believers to live with integrity. We should not expect people who are not following Jesus to be following Jesus. Like so often we do, like, oh, I confronted my coworker for swearing because Jesus wouldn't want someone talking like that. Your coworker doesn't know Jesus. Who cares how they speak? Honestly. It's not our business. You know, we are not to be the moral police of Montrose. We're, we're to be the moral police of one another as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. Right? Um, there's a, a proverb Karis pointed out to me that um, every week I say this is my favorite verse and it's different every week. So this is not my favorite verse, but it's a good one. It's in Proverbs. I think it's Proverbs 26, 17. It says, like, like seizing a dog by the ears is someone who meddles in, in another person's quarrel. And, and I, it's a great, just a great picture of what we should not be. We, we are not to be the moral police of the world as Christians. That's not what God calls us to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is explaining this to the Corinthian church. Um, are, we, are we to judge those outside the church? He said, no, we're not to judge those outside the church. God will judge those outside the church. We're to judge those inside the church and confront, as Nehemiah does, I'll, I'll read a passage to you in a moment, confront those who claim to be following Jesus Christ and say, that's not what Jesus would do. And you might say, well, we're not supposed to judge. What do you mean judge those inside the church? So the one verse taken out of context, Matthew 7 or 6, judge not that you be not judged. That's half a sentence. The whole sentence is judge not that you be not judged for by the same standard you judge others, you will be judged and by the measure you use, it will be measured unto you. He's not saying don't, don't tell someone that's wrong. He's saying you just need to be consistent. And if you're going to confront someone for cheating on his wife, you better not be watching pornography because you're a hypocrite. You're going to be judged by the same standard and you need to get that log out of your own eye before you go confronting someone and saying, you know, if someone walks up to you, they have a log in their eye. Can I, can I get that sliver out of your eye? No, you're going to knock me with your two by four. 
you know, trying to do that. You get that log out of your eye. Then you come to me first. That's what Jesus is talking about. And so Nehemiah here, he, he's confronting chapter 5. This is not on the slides, but he says, Now the men and wives and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. They're basically saying, We're starving. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. And so this is an impoverished Jewish state at this point. And on top of that, there's a famine. Verse 4, still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. And although we're of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we've had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we're powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. And when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind. And then I accused the nobles and officials, the Jewish nobles, the Jewish officials. I told them, you're charging your own people interest? So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. And so it was against God's law to charge interest to a fellow Jew. Deuteronomy 23, 19 and 20. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. Pretty obvious what that's saying there. And Nehemiah 5 goes on to say they were charging 1% monthly interest, which is a 12.7% annual rate. Check out what your credit card charges you. And then realize that was against God's law. And Nehemiah was confronting them and saying, this is wrong. And who does he confront? Not non-believers. He confronts individuals. He could have started a group called Jewish Lives Matter (laughs) that protested the systemic enslavement of Jewish people. And that would be true. There was systemic, systematic Systems that were, were made to enslave these Jews. But he didn't do that. He confronted the individuals. Groups never do anything wrong. Did you know that? I'll say almost never. Because maybe there's some instance I haven't thought of. Groups almost never do anything wrong. Individuals do things wrong. Individuals together do things wrong. Groups don't do wrong things. And so he confronts the individuals. He gets the guys in the room who are selling people and who are charging interest. See, back then, if you couldn't pay your bills, you didn't just say, well, I declare bankruptcy. Bankruptcy is actually, it's actually an old, based on an Old Testament law that every seven years, everything you owe, all your debts are wiped out. And so typically bankruptcy laws would say for seven years you can't get credit, but at least your debts are wiped out and now everything's just weird. But, um, so, so he, but he got them all. If you couldn't pay your debt though, what would happen? Well, they would sell your stuff and if that didn't pay your debt, some of them had already mortgaged their land. So you, you don't have your land. I own your land already. So how do I get the interest payments? I'm selling your daughter. To who? To anyone who will pay me. And Nehemiah is saying, this is wrong. 
And because he didn't flee into the temple, because he had personal integrity himself, he was able to stand up to these people and confront them. And um, the passage goes on and more. And so that, that goes together. You can't confront, you can't call other people to live with integrity if you're not living with integrity. And, and so Nehemiah was the real deal. These people knew him. In fact, this is interesting as you read chapter 5. As far as possible, he said, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. I spent my own money. And we bought Sarah back. And we got, we got John and we bought him. And Joshua over there, we bought him back. And you're turning around and selling them again? Now you're selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us? And they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier, whoops, the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them, probably a monthly charge. In addition to food and wine, their assist, assistants also lorded it over the people, but out of reverence for God, I didn't act like that. Basically, Nehemiah was appointed the governor, and he didn't take a salary once over 12 years that he was there. And, and this shows you how poor they are. 40 shekels of silver as a tax, a month to give to the governor, that's, that's one pound of silver. Today, you could buy a pound of silver for 450 bucks. This is an entire city, and they can't pay that. Entire region, because he's a governor, not just of the city. And they're so impoverished. He says, I just couldn't, I, I just couldn't do that. And so for 12 years, Nehemiah lives with integrity, with generosity. And then this is interesting. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. 150 Jews and officials eating at the table of Nehemiah. And who were enslaving people? The nobles and officials. So these men he, were, he was confronting, he had dinner with them every week. And so they knew Nehemiah. They knew he was the real deal. They had a relationship with him. And when he publicly shamed them and called them out, I'm sure there were two different reactions. I'm sure some of them went home and said to their wife and family, that Nehemiah do-gooder, he's meddling with our bottom line and we got to stop, you know, selling these, you know, kids as slaves. And I can't believe he's so full of himself, so self-righteous. But I bet, I bet some of those other officials went home. Completely different conversation. I bet they said, honey, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change things. Things are going to change going forward. And I'm not going to do what I have been doing. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not collecting on these loans we have. I'm forgiving these loans because I want to sleep with, I want to be able to sleep with myself at night. And I've, 
picture these girls' faces that I sold to that man, and I knew exactly what I was doing, and it was just business, but it's not going to be business from this day forward anymore. Nehemiah made me ashamed of who I am, and I should be ashamed, but I, I, want, to be, I want to be like Nehemiah. I want to have that kind of character. I want to have that kind of integrity. That's how we're going to live going forward. And things are going to be different. Because Nehemiah lived with integrity for over 12 years in front of these people and called them to integrity. What about you? Is there anything in your life that is like a leech sucking the life out of you spiritually? And it's your guilty little pleasure. And it's not hurting anybody. And it's, you know, you should see so-and-so. He does it worse than me. Get rid of it so that you can live with integrity and call others to integrity and build something greater than a wall in your life and through your life. Your mission on earth isn't to drive a water truck change adult diapers in a nursing home, help people plan for retirement, teach kids or build houses. That's not your mission. Your mission is to make more and better disciples. But the way you build houses, change diapers, teach kids, drive a water truck, do whatever it is you do, the way you do it will give you the credibility to do something even greater. Because if Nehemiah had walked into this situation, just cupbearer from the king, I'm new. Hey, this needs to stop. No one would have paid him any mind. But he didn't. He came. He united hundreds, if not thousands of Jews together in 52 days to rebuild a wall. He was generous. He gave of his money. He didn't collect a salary. He lived with integrity. And then when he stood up and says, this needs to stop, it stopped. Nehemiah was the Abraham Lincoln of the Jewish nation. This is the last time in Jewish history Jews ever enslave other people. It stopped with Nehemiah. That's a bigger deal than a wall. That's the kind of thing that God wants to do in your life. And it starts with integrity. Um, how do you multiply people who depend on God, live with integrity, and change and challenge others to do the same? Well, that's a summary of making more and better disciples of Jesus Christ. If everyone were to act like Jesus and want to be like Jesus, all the problems in the world would disappear. Um, I saw this, actually there's a, a lady in our church, she said, man, there's this other church, uh, New Spring, and they're preaching on Nehemiah. So I watched a couple of their messages and this is an illustration from there. I thought it was pretty cool. What if I, what if I said to you, hey, after the service... We're just going to, we got, we got a, thousands of these bags and there's a mountain of sand out there and we're just going to, we're going to fill these bags with sand, you know, after the service. And I just want to invite you to, I want, I want all of you to come and help me do that after the service. Um, I, don't, 
I don't know how many of you would do that. A dozen? Maybe a couple dozen? And you'd fill a couple bags. But if that's all I told you, that, that, that would be about it. But what if I told you, you know, you, you, you've gone through these storms we've had recently. The ground is totally saturated. And what if you saw on the news and knew there is a hurricane coming and it is unlike any storm we have ever had in this area. And it is going to flood. It's going to be a flood like no other. And there are people, there are friends of yours. Maybe your house is down in Halstead near the Susquehanna or it's over in Tunkhannock by the Susquehanna or there's a creek bed near your house that's going to overflow. And if you don't fill these bags, you're going to lose everything that's meaningful to you, possibly even family members are going to be swept away unless we fill these bags. Now what are you going to do? Instead of a couple dozen people filling a bag or two, we're going to have hundreds of people out there filling bags, calling in, taking vacation time because I care about, maybe my house is on a hill and I'll be fine. But man, I know some people in Franklin Forks and they're going to be gone if we don't start filling bags. There is a spiritual hurricane that is already here. And it is sweeping through Montrose, Susquehanna County, America, the world, and people are literally, not literally, people are figuratively drowning, spiritually drowning, literally dying. And we have the answer. And God wants us to get to work to change that reality. I appreciate Chris being here today. Chris was up here on the stage at the funeral yesterday for his 12-year-old girl. And one of the things he said is, I don't know if it was there or in my office, but I don't know what I would have done if I didn't have the Lord and if I didn't have my church family. And Chris came to our church in January and joined a small group. And they've been at his house. They've delivered meals to him. He told me this morning he's gotten over 100 cards from all of you. <laughs> Most of you don't even know him. And people have brought meals by. And that's what God has called us to do. I mentioned that in the first service. And on the way out, Joe Fuller stops me and he says, ditto. He didn't say ditto, but he said, uh, when the fire hit and we lost our home and we lost everything and then I had to go into the hospital and they weren't sure how long I would make it and I lost my health and then I had to go to a nursing home. He says, our church, this church family was there for us as well. I don't know what we would have done without them. And maybe you're here today and you're like, man, the church family wasn't there for me. Will you make sure that doesn't happen to anybody else? Because this is what we're called to do, to get into people's lives, to care, to confront at times, to love, to help. Pick up a trowel, pick up a shovel, and start filling a bag. Heavenly Father, I just uh, thank you for your word 
I just ask that you would forgive me, that you would forgive us of our mediocrity and half-hearted obedience. We're filling sandbags like we have all the time in the world and like lives don't depend on it when they really, really do. Lord, I pray that you would help us to jump into people's lives, to make a difference, to, to make those calls, to write those notes, to pull someone aside, even after the service today, and say, hey, can I pray for you? Is there anything I can do for you? Can I help you? Because that's why you made us. That's why you saved us. That's what Jesus did. Lord, I just pray that we would be different and that we would change the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.